Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Among the many dire consequences of the pandemic have been the challenges surrounding school-aged children at home. Balancing home life with work life is an ongoing struggle for many parents. And during quarantine, some three and a half million mothers living with school-aged children left active work, many losing jobs or on unpaid leave. But even long before the pandemic, portrayals of motherhood were often unrealistic. Later in the program, We'll listen back to a conversation with film and media historian Eddie Von Mueller about the tropes of motherhood found in pop culture. First, music on the upcoming concert by the Atlanta Women's Chorus embodies the honest, unfiltered truth of Atlanta's history. Phoenix Rising is a pageant of diverse music from the folkloric to pop, moving through Atlanta's past from its early settlers all the way to outcast. The performance of the Atlanta Women's Chorus will be Thursday at the Mabel House Barnes Amphitheater in Mabelton. Dr. Melissa Rossi is artistic director for the Atlanta Women's Chorus, and joins us now via Zoom. Missy, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks so much, Lois. It's great to be here. This concert was slated for the 2019-2020 season, and we all know what happened then. But the women's chorus held out until now so that you all could perform live in front of audiences safely. It's been said that the event itself has risen from the ashes. Why is this show a good one for returning to in-person performance? Well, as you said, this was slated to happen um, June of 2019. And I actually formed this idea of this theme for the show in late 2017. So it's interesting how timely it feels now to be looking at maybe stories that 
I learned as a child in school that weren't exactly the way history played out. And uh, it, it seems pretty timely right now. We have video vignettes that and a script that runs through this show along with the music and all of it was planned, shot, everything was ready to go. <laughs> and it just didn't feel like the right topic to try to do on a virtual choir presentation. We were very connected to this material and the story that we're trying to portray and uh, felt like it needed to be in person. And we were really, really thrilled to be able to be at the Barnes Mabel House Amphitheater because it's open and we can be much more safe than in a closed theater and be in person where those uh, facial expressions and the personal connection really make a difference in telling the story. Mm. Phoenix Rising tells what you refer to as the honest history of Atlanta. What do, you, what do you mean by honest history? So as I was kind of alluding to, I, I realized um, in 2017, late 2017, a lot of different things were happening. And I read a book called Blind Spot, and it points out the biases that we don't even realize. I think it's, its subtitle is biases, hidden biases of good people. And I started realizing that racism was something that I thought, oh, like many white people, I don't think I'm racist. But when you dive a little deeper, you realize some of the blind spots that you have and some of the things that maybe made your life a certain way that you just didn't see things. And I realized my Georgia history in eighth grade, and I went back thinking about what my Georgia history class really taught me. And I really was enamored with the whole Gone with the Wind era. I remember reading the book and getting caught up in this antebellum beauty and wonder. And I really, honestly, as a child, did not realize all of this was about slaves. And the Civil War was about slavery and the enslaved humans. And I think even though... As an adult, I started realizing these things. I don't think I had totally come to terms with that inner struggle that perhaps I wasn't unbiased. Perhaps I wasn't really seeing the whole picture. And so I started trying to really educate myself. I felt like I was really behind. <laughs> and this show is very positive and uplifting. It's not a, a drag, but it is serious. And it's serious about how we've treated Native Americans, how we've treated enslaved African Americans, how we've treated people through history, but that Atlanta is strong and resilient and we are rising, that Phoenix is rising as it, as it has through the years. Maybe not everything we've done has been something we're all proud of, but there's this hope within the show and within our city, I think. Phoenix Rising incorporates video elements, as you mentioned, as well as the chorus's performance. What can we expect to see in these video segments? Well, we were really inspired. We did a lot of research for this show, um, going to the uh, Civil and Human Rights Museum in Atlanta, going to the Atlanta History Museum, talking to as many people, researching as much as we could. 
And it was really striking to me the way the new cyclorama is portrayed in the Atlanta History Museum. And it's really seen through these beautiful silhouettes and the story through the eyes of a child. And so we've written a script that kind of goes through the eyes of a child as a current child, that how they see Atlanta and their parents talking them through what maybe happened in the past and what they may not exactly understand in the way that it happened, but then moving it forward for, like I said before, a hopeful situation that we're really doing a good job of trying to come to terms with a lot of things. Mm. This show was written and produced by members of the Atlanta Women's Chorus. What can you tell us about the writing process? These women that wrote on this were, I have a committee, it's my music production advisory committee. And we meet and talk about the songs that we're going to sing in any show and what we see as a visual impact. And if there's something that is a thread that goes through that would be meaningful, some text. And three people, Courtney Fetters, Cam Felice, and Sharon Jones worked together. And as I said, we did a lot of research to focus in and hone in quickly because this is not a, you know, a four hour show by any means to get to the heart of things that connect each of these songs and pull us through history. They, they did a beautiful job. And of course, as wonderful writers, it was amazing. I certainly could not have done this without all of them. <laughs> there is a wide range of styles on the program, American folk music, songs from the Underground Railroad, modern pop and hip hop. Would you give us some highlights of the music in Phoenix Rising? Oh, certainly, certainly. Well, as I said, we start with uh, the Native Americans, the Trail of Tears, and we really wanted to pay homage without trying to sing their music inappropriately. So we are, are doing that through audio and video, and then we recognize the sacred harp singing tradition by singing Wondrous Love, uh, a very common popular song of that sacred harp historical style. Then we move on, as you said, into some of the um, songs of the era with Drinking Gourd. the very current piece by Cynthia Erivo, Stand Up, that was in the Harriet Tubman movie. It's, it's really quite powerful, as well as Johnny Aru, which was an Irish tune that was brought over and sung during the Civil War. Of course, we have to sing Georgia on my mind, because <laughs> how could you not, right? <laughs> if it is Georgia history, you gotta you got have to. it.
things and then acknowledging different things within the civil rights movement in the 60s we're singing ain't gonna let nobody turn me around and a wonderful arrangement called marching to freedom by rollo dilworth and it is infused with um oh freedom just really a a really powerful set and demonstrating what happened during the civil rights movement a song recently mentioned on the Atlanta Women's Chorus Instagram account, I saw. That song is called Follow the Drinking Gourd. You mentioned it a moment ago. It's about runaway slaves using the stars as a guide. Yes, the Big Dipper. That's the gourd that they're referring to. And, you know, there's a lot of legends behind this. I was thrilled to have... Uh, Rosephany Powell, she and her husband William do a wonderful presentation of African-American spirituals with the meaning behind them. And it's so powerful to actually understand the hidden codes that are within many of these songs and the, the power of sharing this story to understand more deeply the pain and the, the struggles that were going on. The song is very powerful and refers to Peg Leg Joe, who was um, someone that was considered an underground railroad uh, conductor. It, it never really says uh, the Big Dipper. That would not be code. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. But it says, follow the drinking gourd. For the old man is waiting to carry you to freedom if you follow the drinking gourd goes on to say, the river bank will make a very good road. The dead trees will show you the way. Left foot, peg foot, traveling on, follow the drinking gourd. The river ends between two hills. There's another river on the other side. And then where the great river meets the little river, follow the drinking gourd. Melissa, with this return to life performance, after the long pandemic hiatus. It must be thrilling to bring those 80 voices together again. We don't have quite all 80 this time because uh, there are people concerned still. And it's very difficult to learn the music virtually. And we learned all of this music last spring and only this month have gotten back together in person, masked, and socially distance, uh, spread out in the, in the room that has great ventilation and high ceilings. So thank goodness for that. And we've only been singing that music for basically three weeks now together, but we learned it prior. So some people didn't feel as comfortable learning it before and trying to pull it back together now, but it's been amazing how well those singers have really focused and pulled together, I think that they all really have missed not only being together, but singing together. That feeling that we have of corporate breath, I've mentioned that before, where you all breathe, inhale together to make that first sound. It's a really emotional, powerful thing. And uh, we're just glad to be getting back to some sense of normalcy and hopefully things will continue to improve with this Delta variant and, and we'll be able to get back to even more normal live shows. Dr. Melissa Rossi, 
artistic director of the Atlanta Women's Chorus. Their in-person live show, Phoenix Rising, will be performed outdoors at the Mabel House Barnes Amphitheater in Mableton on Thursday. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up after a short break, film and media historian Eddie Von Mueller talks about tropes of motherhood in pop culture. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A survey by the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that between March and April of 2020, some three and a half million mothers living with school-aged children left active work, either shifting into paid or unpaid leave losing their job, or exiting the labor market altogether. The weight of juggling home life with work life was around long before the pandemic, though often inaccurately depicted on film and TV. In 2018, film and media historian Eddie Von Mueller joined me in studio to talk about tropes of motherhood found in pop culture. Moms are an incredibly important part of sort of the American mythology, right? We think about mom and apple pie. And regardless of what you think about apple pie, everyone's got a mom. And moms have a a unique and iconic status. In part, it may be an outgrowth of sort of the Victorian ideal that uh, the American middle and upper class really embraced in the 19th century. It in part has to do with the relatively narrow range of things that women are permitted uh, as as a means of expression and activity within a culture. It's going to be not really until the 1970s that having women of a certain age in films or on television who weren't mothers becomes something that we're, we're comfortable with. So motherhood is both personally important, but it's also socially important. And in a patriarchal culture that narrows the range of opportunities for women, motherhood was sort of a safe space. 
something that no one was ready to criticize. Well, it was reflecting life at the time. I mean, it was reflecting the cultural norms. It's no surprise that it would be in the 70s when we see Mary Tyler Moore. Sure. Many movies don't even have much to do with moms unless it involves doing mom in. Yeah, mom can be a a fairly dangerous occupation in a lot of films. <laughs> in life, too. Well, this is true. But you really – you don't want to be the mother of the protagonist of a Disney film. Oh, that's for sure. Bambi – I still haven't gotten over Bambi. Dumbo? Poor, poor Bambi. <laughs> yeah, Dumbo and, and Nemo and the majority of Disney's princesses. Uh, offing mom is a great gambit for winning the audience's sympathy. And we even see it in other genres like action films, superhero films. Superheroes do not have a lot of uh, intact nuclear families. If, if you've seen the uh, Avengers Infinity War, there's actually a joke about how many mothers have been offed in the furtherance of the hero's journey. Harry Potter, no mom. It's not fair. There should be a way to have a healthy nuclear family. And, you know, a magic wizard doing wonderful things or people saving the universe. You have some clips for us. Do you want to talk about, you mentioned superheroes. We have a bit of dialogue from 2016's Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. You're letting him kill Martha. What does that mean? Why did you say that name? Find him. Save Martha. What was that, Eddie? Uh, well, Batman versus Superman, uh, Zack Snyder's film from 2016, which was the attempt to launch uh, a new franchise for Warner Brothers. The plot in part resolves itself around the coincidence that both Batman and Superman have a mom named Martha. But because we've had so many Batman films since Tim Burton's in 1990, Martha Wayne must be the most murdered woman in American <laughs> pop culture but it, it raises the question of sort of why why can't why can't i have a mom and be a hero uh at least a hero like batman and i think in our imagination and it's a testament to the immense significance that mothers have as an image the worst thing that we can imagine is somebody's mother being taken from them now dad might have it coming but moms Moms are sort of almost a sacrificial lamb in a lot of stories. And when we render someone motherless, it conveys to an audience or to a reader, it conveys this uh, idea of vulnerability and trauma in a way that no other personal loss really can. So the repetition of this trope of the, the murdered or, or sacrificial mom, mm -hmm. the repetition of this underscores the significance 
of the mom in our kind of popular cultural imagination. And it always wins us over. Oh. I, I was thinking about the coincidence of Batman and Superman both having a mother named Martha. Martha Washington, the mother of our country, what, you think that was sure. the knot? I think that's I think that's precisely what it is. And and these are two very different characters. Superman's mother is still alive, but constantly being kidnapped and threatened, at least in the contemporary films. But also when we think about Batman, he is this urban figure and very vengeful and very violent, whereas Superman has a moral compass. He comes from a small town. And moms and family and sort of, if not the small town, then sort of the the lower rungs on the socioeconomic ladder, very prominent in movies. You don't find a lot of rich moms depicted favorably. Good point. Good point. Because if they were to um, have earned a great deal of money, that would have meant working. Right. So either they've married up or they have been career focused and frequently women in the upper classes or women in power in television and film are going to be depicted as either bad examples or sometimes as spoilers of their their children. One of the great uh, maternal melodramas from the classic period, 1945's uh, Mildred Pierce, right, which is about a woman whose desire to provide her children with a higher status upbringing right, leads to her eldest daughter becoming this very materialistic and ultimately potentially murderous and callous creature because she is so obsessed with sort of providing that. You maintain that mothers have tremendous symbolic or totemic power. Would you elaborate? Sure. So if you want to tell an audience that a character isn't all bad, you give them a mom. Uh -huh. I'm thinking about all of the great gangster moms. Oh, excuse me, but I just thought Tony Soprano, that was not a good mom. That was not a good, that was not a good mom. <laughs> Though Tony Soprano is sort of a, a figure from a, a later phase sure. in, the, in the mob thing, a revisionist. And of course, uh, Tony Soprano's mom sends him to therapy, which becomes by the later 20th century, right, it's almost a joke. Your mom is what sends you to therapy. Right? That <laughs> mothers, mothers are pathologized in that way. But I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, 1931, The Public Enemy, Jimmy Cagney, hoodlum thug killer, but loves his mother. Of course. Michael Corleone, thug killer, Mob boss loves his mother. Won't won't let anything happen to his brother while his mother is alive. Even Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas, who is a sociopath if not a psychopath, is given a scene with his mother because it is how you demonstrate that your character has a soul. And as long as your character still has a soul, we we're allowed to care about them. We have a clip from. Uh, that classic scene from the 1990 film, Goodfellas. 
So tell me, tell me, where have you been? I haven't seen you. I haven't even... You haven't even called or anything. Where have you been? Well, no, I've been working nights. And? Um, well, tonight we were out late. We took a ride on the... out to the country, and we hit one of those deers. I tell you, where the blood came from. I told you. Jimmy told you before, I want to say. Anyway, you know, it reminds me, I need this knife. I'm going to take this. It's OK? OK, yeah. But just need it for bring a while. it back, though, you know. Well, the poor thing, you know, we got... I hit him, and his, uh, we hit the deer, and his paw, what do you call it? The paw. The, the paw. paw the, the, the hoof. The hoof got caught in the grill. Oh. I got I to gotta hack it off. Ooh. Ma, it's a sin. You're going to leave it there, you know. So Anyway, I'll, I'll bring your knife back after I do that. Anyway. Delicious. Delicious. Thank you. Why don't you get yourself a nice girl? I get, get a nice one almost every night, Ma. Yeah, but get yourself a girl so you could settle down. That's what I, I mean. settle down almost every night, but then in the morning I'm free. I love you. I want to be with you. I'll just settle down. <laughs> okay, the, we the, are laughing at that psychopath. The, the best part is they've got a body in the trunk, yeah. and they've stopped to visit Mom and have a little pasta and borrow a knife, as one does. Of course. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE at Ladder's Choice for NPR. We're talking with film historian Eddie Von Mueller about motherhood in film and television. So we have a lot of alliteration here, Eddie. Monster Mom and Martyr Mom. Should we start with the martyr? Well, sure. I I think it's related to sort of the sacrifice of the mother in the interest of the hero's journey. Motherhood, in a lot of motion pictures especially, motherhood is uh, constructed as as a kind of suffering. And mothers absorb an enormous amount of neglect and abuse and labor and sorrow. And this both elevates them, right, because – Martyrdom does that. It makes it makes moms on in the movies sometimes a little bit saintly. I think it also robs them a little bit of of an important part of their humanity, because a lot of these martyr moms don't uh, get to experience a lot of joy in motherhood. But if we look throughout film history, we find lots of examples of these long suffering women who sacrifice their health and their happiness. And in some cases, their lives caring for their children. And there is a a whole category of films, maternal melodramas, more alliteration there, (laughs) maternal melodramas that really relish the pain that mothers experience. And we can think about movies like Stella Dallas or A Tree Grows in Brooklyn or even more contemporary films. Beaches? Uh, sh- sure. I think Beaches is a, is a good example. I think last year we got two versions of this in the indie space. We got Sean Baker's Florida Project and uh, the Oscar darling Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, which both of these are films that deal with moms who make bad choices, but their bad choices are in part reconciled because it's it's – a component of how they've suffered to take care of their their kids. Well, let's look at the smaller screen. It seems that moms fare much better in television depictions. Television is definitely the momosphere. Television is where moms rule, and that's 
in large part because television grew out of radio and has always been a domestic medium. So moms were a crucial part of television's audience. So some of the most indelible and memorable and beloved characters in television history are moms. One of the first great sitcoms of the the television era, uh, which was called The Goldbergs. There's a show now with a great mom, also called The Goldbergs, which was uh, the creation of a, a Jewish comedian, Gertrude Berg, who created it first on radio and kind of generated the iconic Jewish mother. And she took this from radio to Broadway in 1949, uh, 1948 rather, to television in 1949, and sort of established this television matriarch. And it's an extraordinarily effective um, character that became one of the foundations of that entire medium. Let's hear it. Just a minute, please. Please, Mr. Freud Goldberg, make a little time. This I want to hear. Why is it in all the years that Doris' family are living here? Yes. And you've been neighbors for years. Yeah. Please. please, quiet. Yeah, I'm listening. Why is it you never got very friendly with Doris' mother? Yeah. The one woman in the house that's really intelligent, yeah. modern, yeah, up so to let date. me hear. I'm listening. Thank you. Yeah. Mark, no. please, will you get dressed? Your father's explaining something to me, very intellectual, psychological. I'm, I'm just trying to say that from Mrs. Hyman yeah. and, and Mrs. Bloom yeah. and from 4A and 2C and uh, your friends in the butcher shop, yeah. there's nothing you can learn. Oh, you only go with people because you can learn from them. Sometimes you go with people because you love them. I love you too. Woe is to me. Thank you. You're very welcome. (laughs) Love it. Okay. Mr. Freud Goldberg has to be one of the great names of all time, too. (laughs) So, So moms in a lot of television programs, regardless of what their other characteristics are, moms are often the moral compass. They are the character that embodies a kind of uncritical, all-encompassing, sort of unlimited love. So you can think about Edith Bunker, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the brightest penny, Edith, but definitely the heart and soul of the Bunker family. Marge Simpson, another character who, granted, she is animated. And her hair is blue. And her hair is blue. We can't judge. But, But Marge Simpson occupies... Even in that most satiric of, of sitcoms, she demonstrates that important space that the, that the mother holds. Uh, you could think about Esther Raleigh's character from Good Times in the yes. 1970s. There's a show that's, that's dealing with a lot more uh, real world and social and economic issues than other sitcoms. But the mother's role is very much parallel to Gertrude Berg's role in The Goldbergs. Which is wisdom Mm -hmm. and warmth. Right. There could be a very lengthy discussion, if not a dissertation, on how that uh, Jewish mother trope entered much nastier depiction with the likes of Woody Allen and later on. But we're not going to go there. Um, (laughs) So no Mrs. Bates, I guess, if we're focusing focusing on good moms. Yeah, that's for sure. An exception that occurred to me, Eddie, when I was thinking about your visit today was 
the Netflix series Grace and Frankie, which I just adore, especially Lily Tomlin. She only gets more brilliant with each year. But what a different depiction of mothers as role models or just mothers in the 21st century. Sure. I I think one of the things is for a long time, the mothers within popular culture all fall into a fairly narrow range of stereotypes, and their identity as mother cancels out whoever else they were. Their other personality traits are kind of negated by the necessity, and usually in pop culture, you're either going to be uh, an unwaveringly good mom or relentlessly evil and manipulative mom. Those are sort of your two poles. What's great about uh, Grace and Frankie and a lot of other contemporary media is it large many of these shows involve adult children or older children re-encountering their mothers as human beings, as human beings that have different attitudes and ideas, and of course the contrast between those two characters and their their differing attitudes towards uh, parenting and towards men and towards sex and towards aging. We're kind of at, at a stage where we are restoring to the movie mom and to the TV mom a full range of their own humanity. Mm. And it's not just about taking care of the kids or destroying them. Right. And we cannot have this conversation without acknowledging the great Lucille Ball, who in the second season of I Love Lucy was seen pregnant, although they couldn't say that word on television. And, they um, use the euphemism, uh, the episode's called Lucy Goes to the Hospital, because <laughs> it's basically like appendicitis, but then you have to put it through college. And, and little Ricky came about. Uh, my, that meant a great deal to my mom, because that little Ricky, who was really Desi Arnaz Jr., was born in 1953, and my mother loved being pregnant along with Lucille Ball. She delivered that baby 12 hours before the episode aired, and the entire country was riveted. They kept they kept the gender of the baby secret until airtime to maximize the, the media impact of that particular birth film and media historian Eddie Von Mueller talking about tropes of motherhood in pop culture recorded in 2018. After a short break, a conversation about the poet, teacher, and activist Mari Evans. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Mari Evans was an African-American poet, writer, and dramatist of the Black Arts Movement. After her death in 2017, at the age of 93, Emory University celebrated the contributions of the influential writer with poetry readings, and a panel discussion. 
I spoke with two of the panelists, Dr. Joanne Gabin of James Madison University and Dr. Althea Tate of the College at Brockport. Dr. Gabin began with talking about the good trouble Evans engaged in during her life. Well, she got into a lot of trouble, uh, but it was good trouble because Mm -hmm. she was passionate about so many different things, especially children. Mm. She was passionate about children's education and their safety and their futures. And so when I think about Mari Evans, I think about what she would say at this particular time as these young people from Parkland, Florida, are going to the state capitol and what advice she would give them And she would probably say, you have to know about the power of language and especially oppressive language that would hide the real intent of people. And she would tell them to be passionate about what they're doing. And rally on. Yeah. Yeah. You spoke of Langston Hughes. Um, They pen paled often. There's this one letter he sends her a clipping of a 1964 review where Peter, Peter Levi, right, one of the greatest poets and critics, he said something about the collection that Mari Evans' poems were part of that Langston had edited, and he said that the work should redeem the violent present into statements made to last when the context of the protest has gone. That is the essence of Mari Evans' work. It has to last beyond the moments of protest to literally concretize change. And that's a great part of what she did. I was with her when she was speaking of Sandra Bland's murder with the Reverend in Indianapolis. And it was like, you know, Dr. Gavin can attest, this was a woman who was a force. Uh, Just her presence in the room was a force. Yes, both of you had personal relationships with her. Yes. But when she learned of Sandra Bland's death, I will say, she was silent, Mm -hmm. which was rare for her. She always, she was thoughtful and pensive, but to be silent, um, we were in her, sitting in her piano room, and it was just a, a reverent sadness that I've never seen, um, sit upon her. And so, her work is very present and her presence is very present in a moment like this in our nation. Mm. What was she like personally? She was a firecracker. (laughs) Uh, She said what she meant and she meant what she said. (laughs) Uh, She was a lot of fun to be with because you knew exactly where she was coming from. She was a great cook. Mm. I remember the first time I visited her home, she made a blackberry cobbler that was out of sight. And then I want to, some now. <laughs> to add to that, she took me to the piano, oh. which was always dessert after dessert, and she would play. She loved music, and she would say often that um, she really did not want to be a poet. Mm. She wanted to be a musician, which she was. Yeah. But early on in her career, that idea of being a songwriter and musician was thwarted by people who looked at her in in a New York studio and said, basically, uh, you're never going to be a songwriter. And I think she spent the next 60 years proving them wrong. Oh, clearly. You know, um, this is fascinating. I had the privilege of 
spending some time and and interviewing Rita Dove. Yes. Mm. She also considered being a musician first. She wanted to be a cellist. And she is a cellist. But she said she was too shy to become a professional cellist. She she felt too nervous playing in public. And I thought... Well, I'm sure you're a marvelous musician, but thank God you chose poetry. Well, how does this this joy in life, in music, in food, in poetry, how does that revealed in her work, in Mari Evans' work? Well, I, I love the poem Celebration, and it, it turned out to be one of the important poems that uh, Mari Evans would pour into. I'll read just a little bit of it. I will bring you a whole person, Hmm. and you will bring me a whole person, and we will have us twice as much of love and everything. Hmm. And she really believed in that. Uh, She was definitely a person who stood on her own, who was not swayed by the conventional wisdom, Mm -hmm. who thought out of the box, and who challenged her people to speak truth to power. Yeah, she was an activist who spent a lot of time with imprisoned populations in an effort for criminal justice, and she'd worked with the Indiana Housing Authority. How did her activism inform her writing? And vice versa. And I think this, if I can go back to a moment to speak of celebration, because I think that's one of the factors that's being left out now with social justice movements is self-care and celebration. That sort of balance where on one hand you have a sword, right? And this is riffing off of Gregory Porter's song about, you know, if love was king, right? He'd have a sword in one hand to, to smite the lie, you know? And in one hand, you have to have a bit of um, celebration, you know, to to bring that balance. And what you saw her doing, whether it was going into Indianapolis prison, running a five-year show, The Black Experience in Indianapolis, which she left to help start the African-American Studies at Northwestern with Lerone Bennett. This was a woman who lived and breathed activism for the sake of an emotional freedom, uh, for the sake of psychological freedom, for the sake of actual tangible material freedom. Mm-hmm. And um, this was at the core of who she was. Mm. Um, you can look in the papers and see her responses to chairs at various prestigious programs when she was visiting there as a scholar and poet. And she was taking cuts and pay as a single mother with two sons because she she didn't theorize and she didn't just practice, which is a commonality that's in the, the academy, right? You theorize and you practice. No, this woman lived what she believed and she, she was in love with the word intentionality. Um, mm. She said to me one time that our generation was allergic to intentionality, <laughs> you know, but this was a woman who lived and breathed. She wasn't perfect, so let's not romanticize her. Um, but she lived and breathed freedom for herself and for others. You and mentioned all. her, if going back through her letters, Emery Stewart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library has Mari Evans' yes. papers. Yes. Mm-hmm. What can we learn about her from 
her archives that we might not glean from her published works alone? Is is there more? Well, you, you'll learn how multifaceted she was yeah. uh, through her photographs, through the tapes of the Black Experience video, uh, through her personal letters. You will learn so much about this woman who was an editor, who edited the wonderful book, Black Women Writers, 1950 to 1980, who was a, a tennis player. Mm -hmm. And some people will be surprised to know that she played tennis until her mid-80s, actively, <laughs> yeah. every week with a partner. And she told me the only reason she stopped was that he died. Oh. So she didn't have a partner. And this is when she was 80 years old. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. She once told me that one of the reasons why she thought her work had, had not been had um, as widely received because she refused to entertain. And we're talking about a woman who, one of the things you can see in the collection is her negotiation with Doubleday. She got back her international copyrights for the book that was a bestseller for them because she thought they weren't doing what they needed to do. Wow. This was a feisty powerhouse, and she wasn't an entertainer. She gave. She wasn't a performer. I mean, she could perform, but she gave life in the direction she felt it would be freedom for everyone. Beautiful. I was speaking with Dr. Joanne Gabin of James Madison University and Dr. Althea Tate of the college at Brockport on the legacy of Mari Evans as teacher, activist, and writer in the black arts movement. Her papers reside at Emory University's Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. On Friday, former President Jimmy Carter will celebrate his 97th birthday, the oldest living former U.S. president. Jimmy Carter is the subject of a new episode in the PBS series, In Their Own Words, tonight on our TV station, ATL-PBA. The program takes an intimate look at the life and legacy of the Georgia peanut farmer who became the 39th U.S. president. You can see new interviews with family members, journalists, and Carter advisors. The show also explores the remarkable ongoing work of Carter and Roslyn. And Roslyn, his wife of 75 years. The program airs tonight at 8 on ATL-PBA. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11, dance performances that defy gravity. Artistic Director Malacio Estrella and Ann Dennington, the Executive Director of Flux Projects in Atlanta. Join us to talk about Bandaloupe, a dance ensemble that uses the side of buildings as a stage. Bandaloupe will perform along the Atlanta Beltline this weekend. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. 
There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.